I'm Anna Tonk. Welcome to How to Be Human, a podcast that explores the common and often confusing themes of humanness. Hello, I will be honest, I don't fully know what this episode is about besides death. I just knew that I really wanted to talk to my friend Heather Hogan, who joins me today about it because she has this extraordinary relationship with death. She's also been making friends with it for a very long time and then continue to sort of answer the call to go deeper with her relationship with it and now has become a death doula. So I thought in terms of kind of the business of living and dying, I thought Heather would have real perspective on it. So please enjoy this episode with Heather Hogan. Right. I was about to say um, I'm here with the queen of death, but I would I don't know that that would be the best way to welcome you. It's funny to me that you're one of the loveliest people we met doing a kind of hilarious event. Heather, can you introduce yourself and tell the listeners who you are? Uh, Yes, I am Heather Hogan. I am a life coach and death doula amongst 97 other things, um, but those are my primary jobs. And I work in Brooklyn, New York, which I feel like is really lucky because we have access to all kinds of weird forms of education here. So yeah, following my curiosity has definitely led me down some interesting professional paths. Yeah. You're also, I don't know if you're doing that much meditation anymore, but you're also a really incredible meditation teacher, doer, haver, holder? Uh, So I'm definitely a meditation student, always learning. I'm a trained Buddhist meditation teacher, and I haven't been offering my community meditations for some time because I've been busy working on this documentary series that I'll tell you about. But yes, so I am an avid meditator. And I think that that's, that's a lot of When I look at all of the disparate things that I do, whether it's coaching, whether it's death doula work, reading tarot, leading meditations, to me, all of these things that I do are different access points Mm. to getting to the same place. How do we get down to the nature of what it is to be really uncomfortable with not knowing parts of ourselves and parts of the world and... I don't know. I like to keep people company in these spaces, you know, because it's scary to do alone and it's often really blind. So yeah, it's like all the doorways are are there because I think each of those things are interesting, but they're also there for other people. If tarot is the place that makes you feel safe and makes you feel like you have an opportunity to see further into yourself or your life experience, then come through that way. If you want something more therapeutic and action-based, we do life coaching if you feel like you are sort of fumbling your way through an experience of loss, you know, through death and dying, then I'm your girl. I just love that. Something I, I mean, I, rem- I remember from meeting you because I knew, I knew our other friend that we, we did that event with and I knew your name. I'd seen you around the witch way, but I, we hadn't met yet. And like I said, like, you're this lovely, like, light of a person, you know, but 
You're also like no fucking joke. Like if it's intense, if it's something that a lot of other people shy away from, if it's kind of some in the realm of stuff that I think people avoid or whatever, you're like, let's go, let's do it. I think you have a lot of bravery and you let me interview you for another project. And I literally was lamenting that that interview will never see the light of day. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe it'll be, you know what? Spring's coming. It's a theme of resurrection. Maybe it'll resurrect. Who knows? But I know that your stepfather died when you were a teenager. And something I think about probably once a month, I kid you not, is you telling that story and telling about preparing his body. And that mm-hmm. you participated in that. Mm-hmm. I want to say you were a teenager. I can't yeah. remember exactly how old you were, but young, not an adult. <laughs> and how the fuck did you do it? How did you have the maturity and wisdom? What allowed you to do that? Death doesn't freak me out. Like bodies don't freak me out. I do think I have a little bit of a fear that they'll come back to life the minute I touch them. Here's the thing. All the weird shit that I do and stuff that I'm so comfortable with, I can't do zombie shit. Like, zombies <laughs> and movies, I'm like, I cannot. Like, it. it no. <laughs> You're like, nope, nope. I need to tr- truly trust when people are gone, they are gone. Like, as much as I don't want you to be gone, I definitely don't want you to rise up out of what we believe is your death. So, yes. So- I agree. That would scramble my brain. But Mm -hmm. to me as an outsider, when I heard that experience of yours, I was like, that explains everything I need to know about Heather. But also, it feels like there's this duality here of like, that had to be really informative to you. Like that had to be really shaping and have an influence. But also, I can't believe you were ready to rise and meet that moment at that age. And if you don't mind, I would love for you to just talk about that a little bit of like, what do you think allowed you to show up? And like, there's a sacredness to death. There's a sacredness to like, I think death work that I feel like you do a really good job of like caring and holding without it feeling heavy. But I imagine it is, you know, like, does it just feel like such a calling to you? Did it feel like a calling when you were a teenager? Mm. Well, no. (laughs) I think when I was a teenager, what allowed me to show up to that was simply the momentum of the experience, right? So my stepdad, Johnny, was diagnosed with lung cancer when I was 14 and uh, went through chemo, radiation, had surgery to have a tumor removed. And so those, those first few months, first year, year and a half were rough, but it was like, he was okay. It was weird to see him without hair, which like his hair was his favorite part of himself, like would blow dry it with a brush in the mornings, you know, (laughs) hide with this chestnut hair. So it was strange to see him then like essentially look like Mr. Clean. There's a picture of him in a white uh, t-shirt with a little pocket. And that is always what I've thought. But um, I remember that time being really challenging because look, a lot of us have good relationships with parents, really complicated relationships with parents. I know that that's my experience. And it was really disorienting to see someone who had been a giant in my world suddenly begin to shift their role where they really needed to be taken care of. And the primary caretakers at home were my mom, 
myself. And then my sister came up in the last probably two months of this experience. So, you know, Johnny was working with having this cancer treated. And when it became clear that it wasn't something that he was going to overcome, then we had hospice come to the house. And it was my first experience with hospice. Hospice is incredible. First, that's the first thing I want to say is that hospice is an amazing organization of people who are willing to be in the places most of us feel like we can't go. Hospice care at home is not 24-hour care, which is something I think people don't realize until you're like, oh, great. We can essentially bring a hospital home because the hospital bed is in, the oxygen machine, all of that. And it's not. I was going to ask you about that if you had any support or because sometimes, you know, when people talk about loss or talk about illness and things like that, a common thing they hear is people saying like, I could never do that. I could, I would never, you know, and it's like, well, guess what? You don't always have a choice. And I was going to ask you, like, was some of the caregiving because like you just didn't have a choice. Like there are people don't understand how expensive I mean, well, I think we all do now because America's fucked. But in terms of medical, but people don't understand, like, it's not necessarily easy even if someone is real real fucking sick it is not easy to get care and it's not easy for family to get caregiver or get relief or you know like people don't think about it for parents of kids with special needs and stuff that like a huge thing for them is getting relief care because it's not always covered by insurance or like there is a huge demand. I'm giggling a little bit while we're talking about such a serious thing because Heather did warn me. She was going to babysit her veggie chili and guess what? It needed babysitting. That was, that was so quick. You didn't even know I wanted to, to bust you just to give a little flavor to this pod. But, um, I'm glad that you're bringing that up because hospice, most of the deaths in my life have been sudden or been in a hospital. So hospice wasn't a thing and we did go through hospice with my grandmother and people don't know that like it it is often available and even though it doesn't give 24 hour there are a lot of organizations there are a lot of things that you can get for free that are both hospice and palliative care which is like critical because i don't know about you but like i wasn't trained in that i don't know how to take care of someone you know part of of doula work in general, right? Is that, I mean, cause we've already touched on like 97 things that you could spend an hour <laughs> on piece, right? So yeah. I, I don't even know which place to bite first. So hospice care is oftentimes covered by insurance. You do yeah. have to talk to your doctor. You do have to ask because it does require doctor's orders and it requires a diagnosis of terminal illness with six months or less to live. So most people don't realize that you you can contract for like six months. People graduate from hospice all the time, right? Because if you if something shifts and you start getting better, like obviously hospice is going to talk continue to talk to your doctors. And, <laughs> but if yeah. your process they've given you six months and you have eleven months, you can reengage with hospice. So you'll have people. Um, usually, it's like maybe once a day. Either a nurse or a nurse's aide will come by. So they aid with bathing, mm-hmm. you know, changing ble- like bedclothes and all of that stuff. Stuff that's really hard to do at home alone. One, if you're not trained in it. And two, not all of us have the ability to lift someone, right? right? Yeah. So hospice is amazing for those things. You have access to chaplains if that's something that's important to you. Um, you have a doctor that oversees your case. You have a couple of nurses. And there are a few stages where there's like a maintenance care and then there is 
is sort of full-time care. They also provide something called respite care, which is they'll send someone to chill with your dying loved ones so that you can take a break um, because it does fall on the family. And that's what happened with my mom and I and my sister was that my mom was working a full-time job, which for her generally meant seven days a week. She was going in on weekends working at a law firm. I was 16 years old, a junior in high school, and involved in a lot of after-school activities. And I mean, I don't remember the details of it now, but we had written some letters somewhere so that I could get my driver's license early Mm. as I needed to be able to drive to the grocery store um, because at a certain point, we just couldn't leave the house. He couldn't be there alone. Um, And so it did require a lot of growing up really quickly and in a way that I would never really wish on anyone because there's a lot of destabilizing that happens, right? You're such a kid and you also feel kind of grown up and grownups need grown up help. And I'm so grateful that my sister was able to come. But at a certain point, you know, my mom was taking unpaid time off of work to be home and she would be home all day. And then, well, I guess in the beginning, my mom would be at work hospice and stuff would be there during the day. I'd come home from school at 2.20 and then I would make dinner, clean the house, get things going. And then my mom would come home. And then once it was sort of like that wasn't able, we weren't able to do that any longer. My mom was there full time and we all just kind of took turns, you know, and family rallied, right? And like you just circle wagons and you do what you can. But I do remember that before Johnny died, he had this thing, which a lot of cancer patients, so we're, we're talking about, like you said, the difference between being able to engage hospice is one, knowing about it yeah. and understanding the myths of like that fucking lie that people are like, hospice kills people because morphine is involved. It's comfort care. Morphine is not what kills your loved one. The disease kills your loved one. Yeah. Well, and morphine... Morphine actually is also incredibly compassionate. Like death isn't cool. Like when the body starts to shut down is not cool. And I think what people don't understand as well, if like, I think sometimes adults don't understand if their only relationship with death is like their grandparents died is it's everything you're talking about. It, it is the practicality of like, this person can't be left alone. You know, like it, it's the like, how the fuck do we live and keep these lives sort of going while someone's dying? Like that is often to me the point of having hospice care or having a death doula is like, it's not just about the like the the death or the, or the person, you know, it's supporting the whole structure. It's dealing with everything. Most people don't know you're really on your own. It's not like anyone shows up and goes, ah, yes, we are the death representative. You know, like here are your next steps. Here are your. Bless it if we're a job. Like, (laughs) all right. Like I'm happy to try to be the Fred Rogers of like death education. Like let me be a neighborhood death doula. Yeah. you know, we'll, we'll all get cardigans and we'll all figure our way through. <laughs> I've um, anointed you as such. <laughs> I'll take it, dude. No. I, but you're, you're absolutely right. Most people don't realize, okay, when you really get down to it, most people don't want to die in a hospital. Yeah. And there is that deep heartfelt place that I think for most of us, like understands when you really don't feel well, all you want is to be at home in your bed, in the, the like the places that you find comfortable. So to have that 
magnified at the end of life, most of us can say like, that makes sense. But the practicality of what it takes to do that requires everyone in your community to turn on and begin to contribute to this experience because that structure of everyday life for each of us takes our daily maintenance. And when your daily maintenance energy begins to be turned to one person in particular to usher them, not through just their death, but through their full dying process, the end of their disease process, it can take weeks and months and it is, it can be exhausting. So like I, I do believe, like, I think when people see the things that I post about death and dying, it does come across as really cheerful. And I hope not in a disrespectful way. The idea is to say that this is a really fucking hard thing. And there is beauty. There is joy. There is truth. There is connectivity to be found in that place. And that's all flowing between all the rest of the challenging stuff. Yeah. Which is why a group like hospice and then engaging death doulas is something that we help with the structure. We help catching some of the things that are falling through the cracks. So you get to be with your loved one rather yeah. than doing the bureaucracy of dying, which is obnoxious yeah. <laughs> and necessary. You have a team of people, right? Like death doulas don't, we don't provide medical care. There might be nurses who do do this but we're not like a, a medical body. So I legally cannot administer available yeah. medications to people. I can't, I, you know, morphine or aspirin. Legally, I'm not allowed to do that. But what I can do is come into the space when there is a caregiver present and I can allow them time and I can clean the kitchen. I can make some veggie chili. Yeah. I do some of the things that just makes the day easier. So it's not this huge romanticized job, which is kind of what kind of what I thought it was going to be in the in the beginning, right? So being with my stepdad, I remember the labor of that and the practicalities of it, right? Like you're changing sheets at some point like he was bedbound because the cancer yeah. metastasized to the spine and so you know, a lot of it is like kind of gnarly work because it's yeah. you know sweet. The body's made of all kinds of weird stuff and it all kind of comes out at times, right? You're doing all of that stuff. And there's a lot of beauty to be found there. And so he, my stepdad did this thing that often happens with cancer patients that is called the rally. And for people who (laughs) have like a long terminal illness and everything's all fucked up for a long time. And then suddenly there's this day where they are clear, they're bright, they're awake more than they have been. They feel like them old, their old selves, not only to them, but to you yeah. as a care provider. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, he's getting better. And this hospice nurse pulled me aside and she said, so I want to let you know what's going on here. That there are, you know, a day, maybe two where he will feel like this, but I can almost guarantee you he will not make it through the weekend. And this was on a Friday afternoon. And, you know, here I am like this angry, exhausted punk rock teenager. And I'm like, (laughs) what's this? Like, you are wrong. You don't know him. You have no idea what's going on. I can't even imagine how confusing that is, you know? And I've I've experienced this rally. I know what you're talking about. Mm I can't imagine my introduction to it being teenage, you know, being a teenager where 
because we're so defensive when we're teens. Like when you're sure about something, you're so sure of it. The conviction that you were like, no, I know him. I can't imagine. But like, what a fucking gift to be told that. What a yeah. gift to be clued in. Like oh. this is a thing. And totally true. these are the angels that walk amongst us. The people who will pull to the side and say, I, cause I don't want your heart to get broken. Like I want to, I mean, your heart's getting broken regardless, but uh, you know, like I just want to give you a little heads up, but I can't imagine what it was like for you to try to like make sense of that at that, especially at that point. I mean, it's something that's incredibly difficult to make sense of period, no matter how old you are, you could be 140 and still be like, what? But to be 16, 17 and like, huh? Like I can't even imagine it. Yeah. Cause you also like fight against everything at that age, yes. but it's sort of like, you know, I was like, this is, this is obviously bullshit. So you should probably get a new job lady. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I, I might be a teen, but like, I know what's up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, obviously I've seen a lot of sunrises. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, she, so she said that to me and like, really, I wish I could remember her name so that I could write to her now because he died at seven o'clock the next morning. And even though, it, so it was this weird thing, because even though we're going through all these actions of taking care of him at the end of the life, at the end of life, there's still all this conversation of hope, mm -hmm. which is the thing that kind of disguises denial in these space. And like, look, I, I mean, hope is really important for people, so I don't want to take that away. But in retrospect, looking at what that was, is that it really is denial masquerading, right? Yeah. So there was the hope that he was going to be okay. And that hope is something that also took my parents out of action because most of his end of life plans had not been made. And so he dies on Saturday, May 13th, the day before Mother's Day. And his sons, my stepbrothers were, I don't know, an hour and a half away. And so we called them to let them know. And, you know, my mom was like, well, we're going to keep Johnny here in the house until the boys can come to say goodbye. And so one of the first things that we did, and subsequently, you know, my mom and I have now done this four times together, but we sort of laid the hospital bed back and we straightened his limbs and it's, you know, mid-May in Virginia. So it's hot. So we crank up the AC and I like, and at this time, I'm sort of just following my mom's lead. And really, I couldn't tell you where she necessarily learned these That's, skills. I was going to ask, is she maybe a secret serial killer? Like, I, you know, <laughs> well, like, I love that she's like, crank the AC, you know, like, I just, it's like, was she channeling? Like, this is, I mean, this whole thing like it's just so, like, part of me really does understand that as someone who's been there and when big shit goes down, I tend to be the one who comes into focus and it mm. gets very practical and is like, okay, well, we need to do that, you know? But also it's like crazy when people do that, when you're like, how did you know to do that? Or like how, you know, like what came over? This just blows my mind. It just, this, I mean, this is my second time hearing it and I'm still just like, what? I kid you not, I think about this once a month. I really do. There's something so beautiful to me about 
you and your mother doing this? And it's so not American to me as well, that we are so sterile about death and bodies. And like, I thought about you a lot when I was in India as well, because the relationship with death is so intimate there. And they're so cool with it. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say cool with it, but like, they're just so accepting of that it is part of life that, you know, that the clock starts running the second we're born. Like they're, it's just in the culture and the way the funerals are like when the person's being brought to the, the crematorium and stuff, they walk through the village, you know, and like everyone sort of pays their, it's like, that's beautiful to me. And like generally that, you know, the family gathers to, to prepare the body and like all like so much of this connection. I'm like, wouldn't that really help mourning? Like, doesn't that help grief? I think. I think it does. I mean, at the time, right. You, like I was kind of lost in a, fog because none of that seems real. So you're just yes. kind of moving through the motions and just doing the thing. And someone says, here's what you do next. And oh, when he- are you also alone when this happens? Like there's no hospice care with you or yeah. any, it's just y- y'all are alone in the, the home. I slept in a chair by his bedside until about two in the morning. And then when I went to bed, my sister took over and she came up at about four and seven in the morning, my mom like called upstairs to us. I mean, it, it was like just this tiny voice. It's like barely a whisper, no idea how I heard her. I don't even remember putting clothes on to get downstairs. It was like, I remember just waking up and suddenly standing at his bedside. And, you know, she said, she was like, it's just been a minute. And we kind of sat there and the oxygen machine is still on. And when we realized that like he really had passed, that he was out of his body, the first thing I did was turn off the oxygen machine. And my mom, you know, I've never, I have since, I've never heard somebody make sounds like that. Like the grief that my mom felt in those moments. My my stepdad was her high school sweetheart, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was really special and terrible all at once. Yeah. So no hospice isn't there. And so I, and like they sometimes can be, it really just, cause you just never know. You can't really, uh, there's no reservations really for death. Yeah. You can't like schedule it, you know? So yeah. But I was just curious cause the way she sprung into action is so interesting to me that I just am like, you know, cause I, I, in my mind, I'm like, I'm pretty sure when she told me like they were alone, you know, but that that's why I was just curious that like, if there was anyone guiding and saying, okay, if, if you want to do that, then do that, you know, no, no, it's so, just her. Yeah. And she's, I mean, she's such an incredible lady, my mom. And the fact that we've now done this so many times together and it's not that she and I work together, right? Like I just, we mm-hmm. keep ending up at the bedside of people that we love. And so then it became time. It was like all of a sudden, well, he has died. He's here. We need to figure out next plans. And so when one of my brothers arrives, my mom, my sister, and my brother go to the funeral home to start making the plans, you know, which is like its own challenging moment. And so then I was home alone with my stepdad for a few hours. And it was really wild because I couldn't not go in because into the room because it was so surreal. It just didn't seem possible that this person who had been here my whole life since I was three was suddenly gone. And, you know, when we talk about having access to hospice care or home care or having a loved one die at home, 
there's a huge integration of grief because the pre-grieving is happening. You're watching the thing change. You're watching your hope sometimes fall. You're, there's, there's so many vacillating uh, things that are going on simultaneously. And I think that oftentimes, even when you know that someone's dying, it can still feel like a car wreck. It still feels abrupt. It still feels unexpected. This cannot possibly be. And, um, you know, I think when I when I share the story with people, it's always interesting because I think other people are a little bit more traumatized by the hearing of it than I am by the telling of it. And it's sure. because in my life, I mean, this is true with really challenging things that happen in our lives. We're always faced with the option to find a way to integrate this in a way that serves, right? So I know that I was kind of insane as a teenager for a while after that because you're just grappling with grief and it doesn't always look the way that you think it's going to. It's not yeah. always crying somewhere. Sometimes it's full of anger. Sometimes it's just straight up confusion, like the amount of yeah. brain my mom does not remember the 18 months following my stepdad's death. And I was with her every day. Yeah. I had a form of like narcolepsy after <laughs> my dad died, where I literally would just fall asleep because my brain was so overwhelmed processing the grief that it was just like, bye bye, you know, and <laughs> yeah. And I thought something I thought was interesting is Molly Shannon, her <laughs> mom's sister, her mom like, died. Yeah. When she, it, when she was like four, I think, or like young in a car accident. And she talks about her comedy being so physical because it was almost like a form of self-harm that the physicality and the harming herself and throwing herself into it was a way she would kind of offload some of her grief, yeah. which... I thought was fascinating and it, it made it a lot of my, um, cause my dad died kind of similar age range as you. I was 16 that it was a really weird time to be at home and then go off to college and be this like snarling mess of things. And also trying to be like excited. Like I'm now in college, you know, like it was so many things all at once. Like the emotional and mental structure of it to me feels like a cat's cradle. Like you're, you're, Totally. Strung a million different ways. And it's very easy, especially at that time where you were like really starting to get to know yourself a little bit. Yes. And then all of a sudden your whole world is a different shape. Then you're somewhere new and everybody expects you to just be an adult. Yeah. It was definitely a confluence of a bunch of wild stuff, but being able to be there with him in that time was something that over the course of those hours, I was able to be like, oh, oh, okay. Like this, this is actually happening. There he is not moving. There he is. His face is changing. Like mm. you can see some of the shifts begin to happen and not to scare people at home who are listening um, yeah. because it's not some rapid horror movie thing. It's actually, it can be really quite lovely. And most people after they die, the signs of struggle that we see from the labor of dying tend to go away. The lines in the face soften and somehow people's, their, their visage is so much softer. And not to say that there's like a kindness that washes over them, but it feels kind that we're or able peace. to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think something I've heard from a lot of people who've experienced deaths that were, I'm trying to find a nice way to say this, but 
drawn out, you know, or like illness mm-hmm. or something. Prolonged illness, yeah. Prolonged. Thank you. That was the word I wanted. That you're grappling with a lot of ambiguous loss. <sighs> you're dealing with ambiguous loss. And what that is, is loss where the person is still physically present. So, th- but it could also be like, you know, people whose children have been like kidnapped. They deal with ambiguous loss of like, the person isn't physically in your life or there or present. So this can also be people with like dementia and stuff like that. Ooh. But you don't really know what happened to them. You know, maybe they're still alive or maybe they're just not present. But what's gone on is is open-ended. Mm-hmm. I think people can give themselves compassion and be like, oh, I'm, I'm experiencing ambiguous loss. I'm in ambiguous loss or whatever. Uh, that's something I've heard a lot from people. And, and it's funny, Dr. Pauline Boss, who's the one who coined ambiguous loss, I want to say she's in her 80s. And like, she did a recent piece of talking about her grappling with it with her own husband, which he had a stroke, I think, during the pandemic, which I mean, She's an incredible woman. Like uh, part of what led her to this was like her father's homesickness was so deep. It made him not a present father. So she was looking at that because um, she was growing up in like Minnesota when a ton of people from like Scandinavia had immigrated and stuff, but most of them did not return home. So there were huge communities that had these people really mourning the end of like one of a version of their life, you know? And so she, she went to college ahead of her time in her fifties in the, in the fifties, I mean, and a, a professor said to her, I think it's bigger than what you're focusing on. I think this is a larger thing than just <laughs> absent fathers. And, um, he was like, you're on to something. So anyway, I, encourage anybody who's maybe dealing with something around that to look at her work. It's really impactful. I think it, it, people I've led in that direction have really been grateful for it. However, something I have heard is people are always shocked that the person has actually died and they're mm-hmm. caught off guard in that moment at their own shock. They're always like, I knew this was coming. Like we've known, we've known. And I'm like, you cannot underestimate the difference of when you can look at someone and see them and see their chest rise. And when you don't like mm-hmm. It is a huge difference. We grow up knowing like there is alive and there is dead, you know, like, it is interesting to me how much our brain fights that and like gaslights us about it, you know? And I feel like it's interesting that you almost naturally were like, I know something that might help with this. Like I'm going to go sit with him. Like it it was, it feels to me like this intuitive way you were countering that disbelief of like, Oh my God, it's actually here. Like the moment is here. Like this moment we've known, we were cruising towards it's it's here you know like i do think we really struggle as human beings to grasp things in those it 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 just shows like knowing something doesn't change it doesn't doesn't prepare you for when it happens how many of those times you've had that in your life right like you've had a job before you start a new job you have an idea of what that's going to be like and you get there and you're like this is totally different we don't always have the scope of reality that we believe we have, right? And this is the thing, something that's as impactful as death 
we have a really natural ability to, even when we say like, I totally know what's going on, I know this is happening, is that we don't understand all of the ways that we're still shielding ourselves from the starkness of that reality, right? Because yeah. it is my, like, this is the thing. If a dead body rose up and you were like, shit, there are zombies. <laughs> and you're like, and your brain just turns to scrambled eggs, everything falls apart. Like there are a lot of experiences in life that are like that for us until we do actually experience the moment, right? And to your point, right? When I was thinking about this the other day, the the idea of like when people say like, I couldn't handle that. Mm -hmm. I couldn't handle that. When I hear what you've been through, I couldn't handle that. And I always want to be like, well, you, you actually don't know what yeah. you can handle. And I'm quite sure that you can. And if part of my work as a death doula and death educator is bringing up concepts now when they're not present already and giving you some room to kind of consider and think about that and start to pull these truths about death and dying into your reality, then it you've got a little bit of ground to stand on when these things do arrive, right? So you never know what you can handle. And it's like, there are, there are ways that I would never give up what I've gained from having had that really challenging experience because it was something that allowed me to a few years later in that exact same room be with my grandmother when she died and to again with my mom lay out her limbs brush her hair you know like doing these things it didn't feel weird at the time i think that when i've shared it with people i see a reflection that it's weird meaning that it's just foreign that experience is very foreign for other people so interacting with a body that is no longer inhabited, you know, really trips people out until you have the opportunity to do it. And I think that it can be so loving, right? Like in New York, you can legally have a body in New York at home for up to three days. Never knew that. Thank you for that fun fact. I will repeat it at an inappropriate time. Yeah, but wait until there's cocktails because it gets really good. i don't think I'm not banking that girl. But I when you're saying that, and I think that that's what really I think that's why I have such a strong like sense memory of you telling me this story is it wasn't so much that I thought it was weird. I thought, what a profound act of love. I think I was overwhelmed. I get really tired of everyone's fear about death. I think like it's such a form of, of like self-obsession or like I'm like go to therapy about like your problems with control because that's to me what it's about. Like you can't really grasp that one day you will have to relinquish control. And like my mom's been planning her fucking funeral my entire life and she's not the parent who died, which I think is hilarious. Five for me. Gratitude. She keeps me posted, though, and she's like, okay, I, I, I mean, she's insane. It's also a way I keep her behavior in check because when she's misbehaving, I'm like, you know, that very fancy funeral you've laid out, you're going to be dead. So I'm going to make the choices. I'm like, so if you don't behave, there will be clowns that tell the story of your life. And she's like, you know, you know, I hate clowns. I'm like, yeah, so start behaving. Like during the pandemic, she was like so horny for COVID. And I had to keep being like, remember, if this takes you out, it will be me. And if you and if you get COVID from from being irresponsible, there will be mimes, there will be clowns like you. I'm going to like get frosted tips in your hair like I will do And my And my friends will be like, that's so weird. And like, that's so mean. And I'm like, 
I feel like if you've experienced death, if like if you've been, it's like you understand like it's not a fucking game. And like, we do need to have these conversations. And like, I think I can talk about it with my mom because like, we've been there. We were soldiers together in it. And I'm trying to say to her, I don't do the shit. Yes. See what happens when it's like, then it's a nightmare. It is a utter nightmare. And it's, it's so much harder to grieve. And I Mm -hmm. wonder, did your presence... I mean, there's no way to really like rate your grief, but I do think it's easier to grieve when things are clear cut. Like I loved them. I'm devastated. They're gone. I'm going to just like keep tending to my sadness, you know, like I, and, and you I can do that if all the bureaucracy of death is handled. Right. And so, if like, you showed up, if you weren't so afraid of it, a lot of, and, and I don't say this in, in, in judgment or criticism to anybody, but I know a lot of people who struggled with it are like, I don't really like hospitals or whatever. What is going to haunt you after the loss of someone is that, you know, you didn't show up. And to Heather's point, which she was saying, well, when people say to her, I couldn't do that or whatever, you probably can. You probably, when push comes to shove, can get over your phobia or get over, oh, death just freaks me out. Or I just, if something happened to them, I would die or whatever. It is a privilege to be able to say those things. It is a privilege. And let me tell you, when shit goes down, like it will not comfort you. It'll be what haunts you, you know? And I think it's just really important. But like, I, again, I'm curious, were you just on autopilot when this was happening? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Look, I'm almost 40 now. And when I look back at like my 16 year old behavior and- (laughs) One, like the way that I showed up and two, the ways that I floundered, you know, to your earlier point, it's like, all I can do is try to tap into some part of me that like is usually under a layer of judgment. And once I get beneath that, I can find compassion because there are always ways that I wish I had done things differently. Yes. I was married when I was really young. I got married when I was 22. Oh, that's right. I always forget about that, that you were a baby bride. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I met my husband three months after my stepdad died. And I realized, I mean, I thought about this like three weeks ago that I was like, oh my God, that was a partnership that I found in grief. And I yeah. found someone who, you know, like at his core was a really good person, but was someone who was also really struggling. And had I been in a healthier place, that might not have been the partner that I would have chosen. And I managed to, at 16, 17 years old, you know, become attached to someone who wasn't really the right fit. And it's because it was my my grieving self. Like people also don't realize that when you um, are grieving, when you're in deep grief, there can be cognitive decline. It is really difficult to gather cohesive thoughts or plans and um, which makes like the bureaucracy of planning someone's funeral right after they've died because nobody planned ahead makes all of this really, really challenging. Yeah. And my husband and I were together for a total of about seven years and about a year and a half into dating, his mom's ovarian cancer came back and I was my, a freshman in college We found out over my winter break and in spring, I dropped out of school. I moved in with him and his mom and younger brothers and just immediately started caretaking because I remembered how hard it was to do that when it was just me and my mom. And in those last two months, my sister, 
And all I could think was like, I can't watch people that I know and love go through this experience and not throw myself on it, right? Which is also still a 17 and 18 year old mindset of like complete lack of um, self-preservation, not fully prepared. But, you know, it was with my mother-in-law through that process and her denial of what was going on. I mean, I talked to her a number of times. My mom worked in a law firm and I was like, listen, I can have attorneys come here to the house, but we have to talk about custody because we had two minors in the house. And I was like, we ha- like we have to talk about this. And worst case scenario, this is a conversation that goes completely by the wayside and is never used. Yep. And best case scenario, we have something. And she could not overcome that. And there was no, there were no adults in her life or in my life that were having this conversation with this woman who's 50 years old, you know. Yeah. To, That's to like, let's be real. So I was, I think it was about the Selena Gomez documentary about her being diagnosed with bipolar. And I mean, I give her a lot of credit for making the doc and giving the access she did. And she talks, she's like, like, I wasn't thrilled, you know, <laughs> she's like, I don't want to bright and be like, I wasn't happy about it. And I was really, really scared, you know, mm-hmm. and she talks about how, like, you know, she thinks there are people when they're scared who who seek out info and arm themselves with info and those who don't. And I was like, yeah, girl. And I am someone who when I'm scared, information makes me feel better. I don't feel like superstitious. I don't feel I'm like, I feel maybe superstitious in a different way. I'm like, if we talk about custody, if we get custody figured out, then you're going to live, you know, like, I almost feel the other way, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that was my thing is that I was like, look, if we plan, it's like, maybe probably not going to come in the room. Like, let's let this be a wasted conversation. And then, you know, that, that really jeopardized what happened with her children. And it was like, you know, then we were in court all of the time trying to gain custody and, you know, and it was, you know, I was 20 years old, 21, trying to, to navigate this. And, you know, I just, I think that I have seen it go well. And I have seen it go horribly wrong. And for whatever reason, I keep ending up at the bedside, which was kind of how I ended up finding dual work in the first place. I was going to ask you because I met you, God, it must have been like seven, eight years ago now, which is like crazy town. It's insane. Isn't that crazy? I think, I think it is. When I first met you, I don't think death doula work. I I mean, not to say that you had to tell me all your secrets when we first met, but I don't think, I don't think it was really on your radar yet. Like, I mean, maybe it was as you were like, oh, that's interesting. Or maybe one day you were much more in your like meditation training. You were much more like, that's where your focus was. I'm curious. I know that a lot of my work, a lot of my things is like from my trauma and it is from my like experiences, both like good and bad. Like I've seen some shit I would love to like put into the world different things because of that, you know, like, did you need time to heal to then get in? Like, this is so clearly to me part of your work. It is like why you're on this earth. I think you are supposed to do this, you know, but did you resist it? And did you need some time to heal before you were like, oh, there's a name for what I could do. And it's being a death doula. Yeah. I mean, I, I tucked and rolled through like a bunch of different deaths, you know, so I had great <laughs> died and I had, you know, yeah. uh, uncles and, 
you know, I mean, they had a lot of very close relationships and some that were less close that I was present for, um, which to that conversation of resurrection and we're getting towards spring, this always, um, so I, my grandfather and I were super, super close. His birthday is the day before mine. And I was so excited because there was one year that I asked him if I could come and spend my spring break with him. And I was, I don't know, probably 32, 33 at the time. I thought you were about to say I was in third grade. I love that you were 32. That's so cute. Can I come spend my spring break with you? That's so cute. He's out in Oklahoma and I just called him and I was like, hey man, like, can I come? And he was so excited. He was like, absolutely. And then for like two weeks, he would call me and leave me voicemails because like, you know, I was always at work or whatever. And he would just be like, hey, darling, I just am thinking about you. And I'm so excited that we're going to spend a week together, you know, and I'm really amped about it. And secretly, I've gotten my sister and her 14 month old daughter to come. And it's like over Easter. And I even got my niece, Maeve, I got her, um, rabbit ears and like a clip on bunny tail. And I was going to be like, look what the Easter bunny left, like so excited. And he fucking died. I I knew this was coming. Oh, and it was good Friday. (laughs) And my sister and I were flying out the next day. And so we were like, I guess this is going to be like a totally different reason. And then (laughs) then all weekend we kept joking. Not funny, but it is like the absurdity of fucking life, man, that you're like, well, at least we have these tickets booked. Like, I'm telling you. And it was so funny because I was like, well, you know, she was like, I don't know if I want to bring the kiddo because like she's so young and it's also like a lot to travel with kids. And I was like, well, the upside is that it's Easter Sunday. So like maybe he comes back. Like we don't, so it was like the the joke for the longest time was like, I don't know, maybe grandpa's going to be back on Sunday. Um, (laughs) But uh, I was around it a whole lot. I saw it go well. I saw it go badly. There was a big break of time where I was not with people who were dying and I'm just like living my life, doing stuff. And I think that from the time that I was 16, I always thought maybe I would just show up and be a hospice volunteer. Oh, interesting. And mentally, there was like a capsule around it that like maybe there's, you know, a year of my life where I dedicate my free time to showing up and like reading books to people on their deathbed. Or I do hair, I've done hair for a long time. Maybe I go and do like shampoos and cuts for people at hospice centers or, you know, but there were all kinds of life stuff that just kept coming up and I was choosing yeah. all of these other things. And then our friend, I think, you know, Mariah, I owe yeah. so much to Mariah. I owe knowing you to Mariah, but she knew that death doula work was something that I was looking into. And at the time I didn't really know what it, that that was the name for it. So I'm like online mm-hmm. searching, how can I train to be better at the bedside? And it was mostly because I keep ending up there and it was kind of an act of harm reduction. Like if I'm going to, if I'm going to assert myself and be in this space, yeah. how do I like watch my toes and not like step all over people? And I was surprised because most of the things that I was coming across were organizations like Christian organizations who were like, we're angels at the bedside, you know? Yeah. And it's like a lot of white women in their sixties <laughs> and, and like, you know, not to say that they're not valuable, but I yes. just knew didn't resonate with me. Well, I mean, that's very focused. You know what I mean? I mean, like that's, I mean, that's wonderful. And I'm glad those women are doing it. It doesn't surprise me that it is, you know, Christian women in their sixties, but yeah, that's a, that's a really small representation of the people out in the world. 
of who dies, right? It's, it's yeah, just, we all died. So yeah. <laughs> and so Mariah one day actually forwarded me an Instagram link from something called the Endwell Conference. And this woman, Elua Arthur, it's essentially like a death workers TED Talk situation. And she's sharing her story. Mm. And she runs a training program that's based in LA, but is also virtual. And I went onto her website and started to read about it. And just immediately, it was like hearts in my eyes. I was like, this is the woman I want to learn from. And her organization was still small enough at the time that when you would put in an application, Elua would call you to talk <laughs> about you know, your application and whether it was going to be a fit. But one of the things that I thought was so incredible is that she is an attorney, left doing law mm. work, come a death doula. And it was, again, work that found her similar to me. And that she teaches this, and I think rightfully so, that death doula work and, and death work in general, however you show up to it, is a form of activism. Because by its nature, it is the wholly inclusive experience of life is dying. Every single yeah. one of us will do it, no matter what we believe, no matter what we look like, no matter how we treat people, it's all coming, right? Yeah. And I told her, I said, you know, I don't know that I want to do this as a business. I think I just want to learn. And she was like, oh, that's exactly what you should be doing. She's like, I just see it as each one teach one. Like, we have to be able to bring this home because one, people want to be at home. And two, yeah, because not knowing how to be with not only just the truth of death and dying, but to be with the actual machinations of death and dying is something that causes more harm to us than it causes good. So I personally, like when you're saying, like, you know, if you don't show up, you're really going to regret this. Like, because I've seen it be beautiful, true. And I also want to be very, very careful not to death shame or grief shame anyone because those fears are valid and those fears Absolutely. are real. And if you find that you're on that fence of you want to be there and you feel that you can't, you can come to people like me who yeah. will be with you and physically hold your hand or virtually hold your hand if you need text support. You know, like that's a lot of what my doula work is, is distance yeah. work. And I don't mean to, to shame people, but my point is more, it's helpful for me to think of my future self and be like six months down the road, am I going to care? Like, what will I wish I had chosen? You know, like, will I wish that I had figured out how to get over the fear or will I feel comforted in like, I honored the fear. And honestly, that changes. It changes about tons of things. But I do think like there is nothing, it doesn't get more real than birth or death. It just, yeah. and those are two things where I'm like, really have a, like, be very real with yourself about it. Because I hear more from people with big regrets and realizing like once someone's gone, they're really gone. than I do people being like, oh yeah, that was traumatizing or whatever. I hear much more about what is left unsaid than yes. I do the, the, the people of like what they went through to get, you know, before we get in, uh, go further. Can you tell us what is a death doula and wh what do they do? We've been talking about it all day and here I you are. So death doulas are, I mean, ideally trained, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but a certified death doula is someone who can support 
you through death and dying in many different ways, right? So sometimes it looks like sitting vigil at the bedside. Someone is in active dying stages and there is a doula there to tend to them and to support family. Like I said earlier, sometimes you're just doing really practical stuff, helping run errands. You're just an extra set of arms and legs to like get things done to keep the structure running. I think people Um, also don't know that that is something. I, I know a lot of death doulas I've seen on Instagram, they talk about that. Like I'm doing the dishes so that this person can be with their partner right now, you know, like it's not being a nurse. It's not necessarily administering care. Like I know another time I saw a death doula post that they were like helping with like paperwork stuff, I think, you know, I have a a friend, Ashley, who Ashley Coleman, who's out in Portland, who is a death doula. And so what's funny is that when I met her, she was working in a bakery and she was talking about how the stuff that she really enjoys doing is helping people get their paperwork together. So this is advanced directives, meaning if some catastrophic thing happens, there's a car accident, you survive it to a degree, but it is likely that you will die. You want to have an advanced directive filled out. Do you want to be on machines? Do you, you know, DNR, which is a Mm -hmm. do not resuscitate if if you leave your body and stop breathing, do you want them to try to bring you back? All these kind of questions that I was about to say are really gnarly, but they <laughs> are because they're scary to consider. Yeah. You have someone like me who is both informed and really compassionate about this to kind of sit with you to go through the questions to get the paperwork in place. You would have an attorney create your uh, last will and testament, but there's also other forms, right? So there's so much bureaucracy around death. And so death doulas, like my friend Ashley, can help you figure out what you would need in one place at the end of your life. So advanced directives, pulse or most forms, your do not resuscitate order, if that's something that you choose to engage with, your will, important biological documents. So your birth certificate, death certificates of your parents, if that's something that already exists, um, biological information about your birth parents, if you have it, marriage certificates, divorce certificates, all of these like essential paperwork trails of how you started in life to wherever you are when you are in your dying process, death doulas can help you get that stuff together. And so I used to joke with Ashley that I was like, oh, I can just see her going through this with people. And then at the end of this, showing up with like two pastry boxes, one where there's pastries for the family and this other beautifully wrapped package of here is your end of life paperwork, which is like such a mental and emotional relief because then there's a strategy for what do we engage with in the after. So death doulas can help before, during, and after, and the roles are very different depending on when we're engaged. So you can even invite a death doula into the family's process when there has been an unexpected death, if there's been suicide, a violent death, an unexpected accident, something like that, doulas can come in and support. We're not covered by insurance. Do people hire their own? If you've been diagnosed and you know you have a terminal diagnosis, like, do people hire their own, like, a, a, a personal, you know, because I think of obviously doulas in, in, as it relates to birth, you know, and you obviously, yeah. you hire a birth doula to support you in your birth. Do people hire their own death doula as well? Absolutely. I mean, and mm. this is the same thing. Like, so let's say... Let's say that I am unpartnered without family and I know that I have been terminally diagnosed because Mm -hmm. one, I know that death doulas exist. I can start looking now. Right. And I'd be like, who, you know, death doulas in your area. And like Google it, like you will tease, I don't know, find us there. And 
we can begin to be a flow through system of support. So if you consider hospice and medical care as that structure, something that's very earthly and solid in this, then death doulas move like water. We move through all of the other spaces. And so absolutely, if you don't, if you're not going to have hospice, if you're not going to be in a hospice care center or you are, you can have a death doula who will come and read you poetry at your bedside or mm-hmm. you, you can have us there for many, many different reasons. And we talk about the what's and the why's. So there's, what do you want? Why do you want that? And then we can kind of fill in the blanks. And in the term of aftercare, right? When someone has died in New York, you have to have a licensed funeral director oversee a home funeral, but you can also hire in tandem a death doula who will do the washing of the body, preparing of the body to be at home because it is it involves dry ice, it involves you know some very practical things that aren't super cute, but really mm-hmm. highly effective. And you can have those experiences together with your family after someone has died. So like we really can be brought in at any stage of this and be highly effective. And it's really about talking to the people who have engaged you, whether it is the terminally ill person, like the person who is dying. Usually it's both. The family is also there. So you're helping family navigate a space that they aren't familiar with. And that does sometimes mean you can invite them in to wash the body with you. I don't like the idea is not for me to do it. The idea is for me to support family members in doing that Mm. because there is this form of integration that happens with the grief and loss when you begin to realize that you're allowed to be there. We've outsourced outsourced so much death, which yes. means someone dies at home and then everybody goes, oh my gosh, this is so sad. We need to call hospice right away. We need to get the coroner here to get the body out. And you really don't need to do that. You can be with them as their temperature leaves their body you can do that. And it takes time. It's not immediate. You can have them there. And we can be systems of support too, to hold that ground because there is that when you, as a caretaker, when you've spent so much time taking care of someone that doesn't, that energy, that momentum doesn't stop the second they do. Yeah. You still have that momentum of like, we need to move and do and manipulate things around us because something has to be done. And doulas some of our work is just holding space and saying like, let's all be still with this. Yeah. I remember someone was telling me about their husband dying and they were saying that the death doula, she's like, I'll always be so grateful to her because I said, all I really wanted to do was to crawl into bed with him and just lay with him one last time that because of the sickness, it had been difficult. You know, they hadn't shared a bed in months at that point. And the doula was like, let's get you up there, girl. You know, it was like, you can do that. We'll move him, you know, like, and I'll leave you for as long as you want, you know? And she's like, she was like, I can't think of like what my grief would have been like without that. And I'm like, it's such a bummer. And like, if I feel this way, that it's a bummer, people don't know that this can be available to them. I imagine you want to get like a megaphone (laughs) and yell to people like, death could be better, you know, (laughs) that like, it can be kinder and compassionate and it can be more like, there is such a beauty to death. There really is. Like there is few things that make a, that are so like clarifying and where we really do feel the the breath of our aliveness and all this stuff. But we miss a lot of it because we are outsourcing it because we are scared of it. And 
I think it's so helpful to our healing process and our grief if we will participate in it, you know, but it's not encouraged. Like a hospital, as soon as someone dies, it's sort of like, all right, well, goodbye now. You know, I mean, like they're not even in, I mean, not just because like, I think they're, you know, they want to like flip the room or whatever. Like, I don't think it's always for bad, like it's not always nefarious reasons, you know? It's the momentum of culture too, right? Yes. It's relatively recent that, death has been outsourced to hospitals, right? People used to do this at home all of the time. Yeah. And I think that this is, I, I kind of giggle about it because to me, this feels like the um, like slow food movement. <laughs> you know, where you're like, oh my God, where did our vegetables come from? We should be doing this at home. You know, and you're like, yeah, this is a <laughs> fundamental part of life. So, you know, I don't know that it's... It, like a massive hipster movement of like everybody die at home with your artisan boots or whatever. But you know, (laughs) it, it really is. The idea is more just to let people know that these options are here. If you want to die in a hospital and you want to have a full staff that's going to be available and all of that, then like more power to you. Absolutely. Wonderful. Doulas can also be there at the bedside to be with you, you know, and to your point of like the birth doula, I have a, a really lovely friend, Summer Brown, who is a birth doula. Her company is Golden Sun Births. And she was training as a birth doula while I was training as a death doula. Mm-hmm. And we spent a lot of time talking about this. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so important for people to realize is that death is an incredibly galvanizing force, right? Like, when you're in the room with it, it's almost impossible to look away because it is awe-inspiring. And you are standing at the same threshold of existence from which a child arrives, right? Yeah. And I think with children, because when, when there's a birth, it signifies hope. And culturally, when there's a death, it signifies a lack of hope. And yeah. I don't know that that's the that that's always the truth of the experience. I don't believe that it is because I've seen, I've seen family members cultivate entirely new relationships with each other from having been in the room when their yes. loved ones died, right? Like we come together in ways that we might not have had that person stayed living. So there are a lot of things that can come out of it that take time and take a really conscious reflection to be able to see and to fully appreciate. So, um, I mean, I encourage people to do their work in terms of like, get your paperwork in order. It's super fucking annoying. It takes a long time. It can be expensive, but what you are doing is one, you're taking a weight off of the shoulders for yourself at the end of life when everybody wants to ask you questions, because this is the last time you're going to be able to answer it and you don't, want to think about like the the bureaucracy of living you take the weight off the shoulders of your loved ones because you allow them the space to grieve your loss and to celebrate their relationship with you after you've died when they're not having to worry about all of this stuff so the paperwork is one thing to your mom's point consider how you want your life to be honored when you're gone. So I like to tell people, like, if you're willing to go through all of the sort of contract paperwork of this, then you just get to the party planning aspect, right? Then you just get to the, I do want, you know, unicycles, you know, like whatever it is you want there and let your community know because 
people are going to want to know how to serve you yes. in, in that time. You know, how many times have like, you've been going through something and somebody goes, what do you need? And you're like, I have no fucking clue what I need right now because I'm yeah. barely existing behind my eyeballs. Well, I mean, to Heather's point, I mean, my dad dropped dead on a business trip. We had no idea what he wanted. We had no mm -hmm. idea where he wanted to be buried. We had no way. We didn't even know if he wanted to be buried, you know, <laughs> and he had no will. And it, the dealing with all of the, the bureaucracy and just the cleanup and the completely eclipsed, you mm -hmm. know, grieving him or celebrating him. It was just like, it was such, and it was two years that we were in that, you know, like probating his estate, like fucking nightmare that it, I'm with you, that I am big, big, big on the paperwork. Like mm -hmm. if you can, and people will, will fight me and be like, well, I don't have any assets. We don't, we're not talking about your goddamn will. We don't care about like, who's going to get, going to get rich off your death. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about like, do you want to be buried or do you want to be cremated? Or do you, you know, are you going to try to move to Colorado and be cooked on that pyre they've got going in that town in Crestone? You know, like, what do you want? Like, I don't want to make those choices for somebody not knowing what they want. Like, and, and like, to your point earlier, like, as a survivor of someone's death, those are the things that you live with. Yeah. Did I make the right choice? Did I do? And it's like, so if you're willing to kind of go through the thinking process and you can be supported by people like me through your contemplation process, one, it doesn't have to be as scary because you're not alone in thinking. Yeah. And two, I think like, I tell people this all of the time that making sure that your paperwork is in place. And particularly if you're someone who has pets or children, yes. it is the last loving act of caretaking that you will ever do for the people that you love in your life is to take on the burden of answering these questions and getting the answers on paper for them so that they can just be with the experience. And I think that that is like such a beautiful gift, right? It's part of your legacy. My grandfather who, you know, surprise died. I mean, we kind of <laughs> knew it was, but it didn't seem like it was there, you know, by yes. any means. Do you think he knew? Do you think that's why he was calling you all, all week? Like I do. I do think that that's why he was calling. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I do think he knew and look, he was like a quintessential Virgo. And what he decided to do was he asked his best friend to be the executor of his estate because he didn't want that burden to be on his wife. So he asked someone who he knew was skillful, who would absolutely be impacted My by his death. Grandfather did the same thing. Really? So yes. rad. I mean, it's genius. Like I, I want to who's my most logistics based friend and I can let them love me at the end of my life by like dealing with all the shit that I know other one, you know, other people don't. Yeah. But he, in preparation for his own death, he doubled down on mortgage payments and paid off the house without telling his wife. He mm. his, uh, military benefits to a hundred percent and had them transferred to her. So one, she had no debt and two, she had income. And I mean, he was in his, you know, late eighties he had sold off large assets already. And so it was literally, there was a folder on his desk that was like, when I die, and it was there. He had pre-written his own obituary and uh, just left blank the dates of death. Um, he wrote one for the town he was in in Oklahoma and one for the town he'd be buried in in California. You know, and I just thought like, oh shit, that's, 
that's something that I, I want to be that guy. I want to be able to be like. That's so interesting. And how, um, like that would bring me comfort, like, like planning it out, especially, especially like not knowing when it was going to come, like, but you know, being like, let's be real. I'm in my eighties. Like it's not far, you know, like, I feel like that's like, that's ideal. So I know you, you fell deep into the, to, to the world of death doula ing, and you started working on a documentary. Will you tell us about the documentary? So, okay. So I'm really stoked about it because I've never done any kind of film work. It's not, not even remotely in my wheelhouse. I mean, I guess it is now, but it wasn't when I started. Which is, I think, surprising because like you're so, as someone who comes from production, like I always think you've been in production. And I think some of it is just that you've done a lot of like service industry work, which means like you you have to like kind of think fast. I feel like you are so camera ready. Like your thoughts are always so composed and like all these sort of things that like it's funny to me. You've never done that work that I love that you keep sort of stumbling into these areas that I'm like, yeah, seems like you're really supposed to be doing that. You know, like I didn't I had no idea you had no experience. That's so funny. Yeah. Cause you know, I mean, really I did, I've done hair now for 22 years and that led me to the life coaching work that I do now. And then it was like all of it. I mean, there's a clear trail to me how it happened. And then I look yeah. back and I'm like, Oh, that's like a really twisty ball. Of <laughs> how yeah. I got from A to B. But yeah. So I, I really thought the death doula work one, it, it, I thought I would just, it, I want to be better at the bedside for my own people. And then the night before, I guess the night that I had my orientation call, my dad was dying in a town two hours away during COVID, not of COVID, but during COVID. And literally five minutes before that orientation call, I got a text from his wife saying, your dad has decided to forego his supplemental oxygen, which for listeners, he had three comorbid lung diseases, none of them COVID, but all pretty aggressive. So to take off your oxygen and just kind of see what happens <laughs> is like, it, we all know where it goes and it's going to take a matter of hours. And so. Wow. It was there. that acute, you know, like hours. Yeah. I remember you, I mean, I just want to tell listeners, like I didn't laugh when she said that because I'm a terrible person. I laughed because it, I remember you telling me like, here's a little kicker for you. You know, like we were talking, you were like, guess what happened the day before I started school? And I was like, shut up. Like, right. Like it's, it's so insane. And so, yeah. So I, you know, got to go into my death doula training and everyone's like, tell us your name, where you are and why you're here. And I was like, nah, guess what? So this is 8 PM on the East coast on Thursday night. And at 9 AM the following morning, he died 906. And I had the incredible luck of having enrolled in this course that had been pushed a month and a half because of the beginning of the pandemic and everybody, we had no idea what was going on. So mm. it just so happened that it was like, I don't know, it all kind of came together. So it was during my grieving process. So I had three months of being in a virtual room with 50 other people who wanted to talk about every aspect of death and dying. And then three months of sitting, you know, doing home study. And so over the next year and a half, I did another few trainings, another few hundred hours in the study of death and dying. And in that, I was put in touch with someone who is a filmmaker and his mom had died in April of 2019. And he had all of this footage and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And Mm. um, 
so we started talking about this and it would be like, I'd share what I was learning and it kind of became an R and D resource. And then a few months in, he was like, you know, I don't know that this is just my project. Like, would you be interested in working on this? So for all the work that I thought I was going to do with death work, thinking first with my own people, and then if I did this for others, I'd be at the bedside. It's revealed to me that what I'm actually doing a lot of is death education and creating conversations around death and dying like this. So, yeah, so we are in the process of creating a documentary film series about death and dying. And I like to say that it's sincere, not depressing, because look, death and dying is really hard. And that is a really easy entry point, I think, in entertainment, let's call it entertainment. It's really easy to go into people's soft sides and jab at it with something very sharp and something acute to make people cry. And we were like, that's not the work that we want to do. Everybody's already scared of it and everybody is already avoidant of it. So in a death avoidant culture like ours, we thought, well, wouldn't that be interesting if we can engage curiosity and show people where there's actually some joy and some beauty? So our project is called Death Differently. And we have a few episodes in the bag already, which is excellent. We just found out last week that a short film version of this that we put together was accepted into a social impact film festival. That's incredible. That happens in April, which would be fun. But we're trying to show people death and dying from these really unexpected ways. So we uh, follow a comedian who's put together an hour-long show about death and dying and grief and loss that he performs Mm -hmm. in a funeral home, which is super fun. We have an episode on a music thanatologist, so someone who plays harp and sings by the bedside as an aid to help people unwind from their bodies during their active stages of dying. We followed a green burial funeral director who learned how to do funeral direction because she got her master's in mortuary science in her 50s um, after having a career as a journalist. And we also follow the dying process of a woman who was in her 90s to 92, uh, Shotzi Weisberger, who she is a death positivity advocate. She's also, I mean, what a rad woman. Like, Shotzi was amazing. I um, was, it, I don't like, I mean, I get impressed all the time, but I definitely don't get impressed about celebs or anything. And I have to say when, you know, when she died a couple months ago, I think like I'm not, yeah. I have no sense of time anymore. And when you posted, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe Heather knew her. I was so impressed. I was like, you know, what's so crazy is that I met Shotzi. I learned about her. 13 days before she died and um, was invited in a couple of days later. So we worked with uh, the music thanatologist, Catherine DeLong, who's lovely, who also picked up that career in her 50s for, for those who are dying. And we were like, we would like to do a story on you, but we also know that to do it well, we need to see you with someone. Yeah. And it just so happened that uh, she knew Shotzi. Shotzi had sat in on workshops of Catherine's and during the time that we were getting to know Catherine, Shotzi was diagnosed and Catherine shared our project with her and Shotzi was like, I'm it. Like I can use my last weeks and months, uh, you know, to keep teaching then absolutely. So I learned about her on Thursday, talked to her on Sunday, Monday ended up at her house. And over the course of the next nine days, our team filmed, you know, three or four different times 
And she became a death positivity advocate in her 80s. Like <laughs> she lived so, cool. so much life. Yeah. So Truly. It, she mm-hmm. really did live so much life, which is something I was so happy because I think that your relationship with death is like inspiring, you know, like I think the way you do approach it is like kind of deal with some of the business of it so that you can just live your life, you know, like whatever that means. Like if that means you're, you know, living it unencumbered right now, or you know that there's a little bit more of a timeline to it, you know, that I loved that you got to connect with this woman who I feel like is like truly an elder for the world that you, you know, are swimming in. Like I was glad, like, she's someone who I I think she was also maybe, I mean, she was an activist for a million different things. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's just so incredible that I was so glad that your paths crossed and, and it's like, I mean, how wild is that? You know, how wild is it to like learn about someone and then you're there, you know, like on the front lines, like that is just incredible to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, talk about unbelievable luck and also how this community opens. That's what I found about the death care community too, is that people are so giving and so gracious and so open that it was like the second that her community found out we're working on this thing and Shotzi wants to be part of it. It was like, everybody was tripping over themselves to be sure that we had access to all of these different processes with her. And I mean, I, I feel unbelievably lucky because she was like, a, I mean, amazing and complicated and just a very real human being. And it's really, it was interesting to talk to her at the end of her life and hear what she was thinking. You know, she was like, I'm really curious about death. I don't know what it's going to be like. And I kind of want to see what it's going to be like. <laughs> That's how I feel. I would, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, I don't know if this is an obnoxious question or not, or what do you think happens to us after we die? Did you have an idea? And now that death is so much more a part of your life and work, has your idea of what happens to us changed? I think it changes based on the day. <laughs> you know, I, I- in a, in a very like Irish family where it's like, you know, there are ghosts and we interact with yes. them and it's like there, there's stuff happening, right? It's little like winks from the universe constantly going on. So I think that for a long time, it was like an awareness of other planes that kind of move through the one that we're in. And I think it's still some version of that in my own mind. I will say that like having done work with psychedelics is something that also has solidified that feeling, but maybe in a slightly different way. Meditation too, you know, you go deep enough into a meditation where things become calm and things get really, really wide all of a sudden. And it's like this uh, awareness that all things can be encompassed, right? Death and dying, living, laughing, crying, I love the idea of the Buddhist path of the middle way, right? Because it provides a really great example of like, if you approach every situation in your life, wondering where is there a space of neutrality that I can stand in for the moment while I'm choosing my next step, that place I think to me feels like this nexus of the universe where when I drop this body, I'm reabsorbed into something else. And right, like in a very, very practical way, I don't know what it is that animates us in terms of spirit or, you know, what makes this personality and like studying the brain, you have some idea of 
where the the I-ness comes from, but there's so much yeah. that we don't know. And so that transition to me is like, even if I'm not absorbed into some like Milky Way style, you know, squiggly energy zone, is that to know that my body is gone and who I am is carried with all of these individuals who knew me and the version of me that is carried is the version that they were able to see through their own perspective, right? Each set of eyes that witnesses you and meets you has this whole filter of their own belief and experience and that's the facet of you that they receive. So when I die, the things about me that are going to live on are going to be however people have experienced me. So there'll be some people who might carry this part of me that seems really bubbly and outgoing. And there'll be people who have seen me in my hardest moments. And there'll be people who are going to be like, thank God that bitch is gone because I'm, I know that there have been things that I've done in my life that don't sit well with other people. And so all yeah. of these versions still go. And I think that that's, you know, I don't, I don't know where the, the I-ness goes in the time, but I do know that we're carried on in the we for a very long time. Yeah, it's very, it's very true. The we is carried for a very long time. I think whatever happens to us is beyond human comprehension, you know? Like, think of all the things we, we struggle to comprehend, you know, that we get to see very clearly or like play out in front of us. And we go, I can't believe that just happened. You know, like that we struggle that I'm like, how in the world could our, you know, cute little human brains like ever grasp some of that stuff? You know, like we struggle to grasp, I think, pretty simple things. And again, like I'm not saying that to like throw shade at the human race. I'm saying that just because I think of these things in a very pragmatic manner sometimes of like, I'm also very skeptical of anyone who is very sure. I think I'm also a little jealous, but I'm I'm also very skeptical when someone is like, no, I know what happens. Either, like, listen, you atheist out there, I don't want to hear it. I think that's a cop out, you know? And when people are like, I don't think anything happens. When you're dead, you're dead. You know, there's nothingness. I'm like, can you even really wrap your mind around nothingness? Like you, you can't. So like, how can you think that's what happened? You know, like whatever we could, I could argue about those people all day long, but um, before we start to wrap up, is there anything you, that we didn't touch on? I feel like you've been so gracious, you know, sharing your experience and your knowledge. Is there anything about death or the the practicalities of dying or whatever you want to share with people or think it's really important for them to know besides paperwork do your paperwork paperwork guys do your homework i think it's to let people know that there are tons and tons of options in terms of uh final disposition where you send your body when you go they're really under the umbrella of practical things there are a lot of really interesting and creative things Um, contemplating your own death is one of the, I think one of the most powerful things and one of the bravest things you can do in your life because it is scary. But what I love about this, about contemplating your own death. And I look, I think about this shit all the time and there are still times (laughs) I'll be going to bed at night and it absolutely takes the breath out of my body. When I realize this thing stops, this awareness, this interaction, like it stops, it, it, it can be very overwhelming, but The beauty of remembering that you will die helps you engage more consciously with the way that you are currently living. These days end, they are numbered, right? So 
One of my favorite tools ever in the whole world is to engage curiosity, first of all, because curiosity is both a shield and a sword against the things that really scare us. You can get one inch deeper into contemplation when you get a little curious about why you're afraid or why you're avoiding it. Um, But picturing your life from the end of it, you're in your deathbed. Is this argument in my brain worth holding on to? Is this thing I'm afraid of really worth being afraid of? Do I, you know, it just, it helps, it helps trim the fat a little bit in terms of life experience. You get real down, like down to the quick very quickly. So I love that. Get curious, be weird. It's fine. And if you have the opportunity to be present with someone that you love, take that opportunity because it will be one of the greatest gifts that you've ever given them and given yourself. And if you need support in processing those things or you need support, you can reach out to death doulas, death educators, your local person at your funeral home. Like there are so many resources. Um, but I think that if you want to find more joy in living, just remember that you'll die. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh man. Uh, there's no better hat that I could put on top of that. I mean, you put like the most dazzling top hat, I think of all time on that, like, Whoa, um, where can people find you? How can they support the documentary? So if you want to work with me in a life coaching or death doula capacity, people can find me on Instagram at wisdom and sage, Heather at wisdom and sage and Dot com for emailing. It's all the same website, all that stuff. Please be gentle with me about the website. I'm in the middle of redoing it. So, <laughs> and all of this will be in show notes and everything as well. So, if y'all were like, "What was that she said?" Don't worry, you you can find it. There's other ways. <laughs> um, and the other for the documentary, please, please, please check out the website of deathdifferently.org. Any donations that come through go into um, go in through a nonprofit. So, like, we're not profiting off of what we're doing. We really just want to get education out there. Um, you can see the trailer for the pieces that we've put together. You can meet Shotzi. But yeah, we really want to have more opportunities to create these stories so that death doesn't have to be scary, and you don't have to be alone in your experience. You can be with community and. Um, I think you might find that the experience is a little bit shinier than you'd expect. So deathdifferently.org is where you can find that. I love it. And all, like I said, all of that will be linked. So I definitely suggest following Heather. She's always up to something interesting. Maybe we can like bully her at some point into bringing back the Monday night meditations. They're wonderful. But I also like to let people's work change and grow. I don't like when people do it to me. So definitely follow Heather's work. I so appreciate you being here with me today. I appreciate you sharing all of this. I, you know, I don't think it's easy. So I'm super appreciative. Thank you. I mean, do I have to tell y'all why I wanted to discuss all of this with Heather? I mean, I think she just proves her, you know, case with her extraordinary insights and just, I mean, she's just very cool. If you need someone to help you sort of like kick life in the butt and really be living your fullest life, I think Heather's the one to do it. And a lot of that is because of her relationship with death. So hopefully you will check out her work and support Death Differently 
and I'll see y'all next week. Bye. That's all for today. If you're interested in submitting a topic, please go to anatonk.com and hit the contact button. Or you can email me at anatonk at gmail.com. If you're a fan of the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help. <laughs>